Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Leslie Alexander talks about the African Meeting House, headquarters of the secret society that created New York's first incorporated black organization. For a century, the city's most prominent black mutual aid group. Built on a tiny parcel of land in five points, the notorious working-class neighborhood sometimes called America's First Slum, one might not think this small wooden building is worth remembering. But this failed venture in real estate speculation was the first home of the African Society for Mutual Relief, the group that comprised nearly all of the city's 19th century black elite. In these early years, religious leaders, entrepreneurs, and abolitionists who belonged to the clandestine African Society, a benevolent association that sought to uplift the race not only through the accumulation of wealth, but through covert political action. Its members went on to found Seneca Village and Mother Zion, to establish the first black newspaper in the United States, work in the Underground Railroad, and lead the fight against slavery. Here, Alexander, an historian at Arizona State University, and the author of African or American, Black Identity and Political Activism in New York City, 1784 to 1861, talks about their work. To hear the rest of this series, exploring New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at gothamcenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. In the summer of 1820, a small but determined group of Black activists painstakingly constructed a building on Orange Street in the heart of Manhattan's Black community. A place where Black folks could gather, hold meetings, agitate for abolition, and simply exist, free from racial harassment. Admittedly, the property was small and visually unimpressive. It was also located in a part of town that most people considered undesirable. Situated on a tiny parcel of land, the building was nestled in the midst of the notorious Five Points District in Lower Manhattan, a region better known for crime and mayhem than for community building and political activism. And yet, this particular building symbolized the Black community's deepest hopes and dreams for racial advancement. In order to fully appreciate its significance, one must know a bit more about the building and the people who created it. Eventually known as the African Meeting House, the small wooden structure was lovingly built by members of the African Society for Mutual Relief, a powerful and influential organization in New York City's Black community, composed of the city's Black elite, religious leaders, entrepreneurs, and abolitionists, who hoped to uplift their race through unity, solidarity, and moral improvement. The African society's origins are shrouded in mystery. Like many early Black organizations, it was modeled upon West African secret societies, which operated covertly, allowing only their members to know details about their activities. Secrecy was especially important during the era of slavery, as harsh regulations prevented enslaved and legally free Black people from meeting in large groups. Therefore, 
Since African society members met clandestinely, little is known about their early activities, and even the exact date of the African society's founding remains unknown. Their first public meeting was held in 1784, when they gathered to honor Jupiter Hammon, the first published Black poet in the United States. Even so, the organization may have been active much earlier. Despite fear of white reprisals, Black activists met surreptitiously, determined to work collectively to achieve their goals. In fact, similar organizations sprung up in cities across the North, as Black leaders in Boston, Philadelphia, Newport, and New York resolved to build a cohesive Black community. In New York City, the African society soon became a powerful institution that fortified their community and symbolized the potential that freedom promised. In 1795, the African Society performed their first public political act. They submitted a petition to the Common Council, appealing to city officials to provide burial ground for the Black population. Such efforts may appear surprising or unusual, but during that era, acquiring and protecting burial sites was vitally important to the Black community. Black burial practices were powerful demonstrations of West African cultural retention, and funerals often provided the only opportunity for the Black community to gather unmolested to observe their own spiritual practices. Even more, however, obtaining burial ground also reflected the Black community's most basic human need, a need routinely ignored and disrespected. Even before the official formation of the African society, burial rites had been an issue for Black New Yorkers. In 1788, it was discovered that medical students had been raiding Black cemeteries to acquire dead bodies for dissection and research, a horrific revelation that stunned and outraged the Black community. Therefore, in 1795, the African Society became involved in the fight for burial rights after the city terminated the use of the African burial ground, the only land that the city had allocated for Black burials. The African Society's decision to use petitioning as a form of political agitation was deeply significant. Since the colonial period, Black people throughout the North had used petitioning as an effective method to articulate political discontent and to fight for freedom. In this case, the African Society's petition to the Common Council served multiple specific purposes. First, it asserted the members' humanity and drew attention to their human and cultural need for proper burial of their ancestors. In other words, it demanded respect for Black people in death, if not in life. It also forced the Common Council to consider Black people as equal citizens, entitled to the same rights as whites. Finally, it suggested that the city should be responsible for providing restitution to the Black community. Significantly, their appeal was successful. The African society convinced the Common Council to assign new burial grounds for the city's Black population. After this victory, the African Society returned to covert activity, toiling away within the Black community largely out of public view. But in 1808, the group reconstituted itself as the African Society for Mutual Relief, thus birthing one of New York City's most historic Black institutions, an organization that gave rise to generations of Black leaders, spawned numerous other Black organizations, and endured for more than a century. On June 6, 1808, just six months after the abolition of the international slave trade, nearly 100 Black men gathered in the African schoolhouse on Rose Street to design this new organization. Among the charter members were leading Black activists such as Peter Williams Jr., John Teesman, William Hamilton, and Epiphany Davis. 
Their purpose, as they declared it, was to establish a society to combat the racism and oppression that had plagued their lives and to provide mutual aid and support to each other and to the Black community. Determined to create a lasting institution, society members quickly resolved to become an incorporated body with official sanction from the state legislature. This was a particularly bold move, given that slavery and racial discrimination still dominated most of the United States. Yet incorporation was crucial to Black New Yorkers for a few key reasons. First, it was symbolically significant. Formal incorporation would be a tacit acknowledgement of their freedom, independence, and equality, and it would deliver a powerful blow against their omnipresent enemies. It also offered tangible economic benefits— granting them the right to buy property and collect money as a corporation. Consequently, they petitioned the New York State Legislature twice, first in January 1809 and again in late February 1810. Perhaps to their surprise, the legislature endorsed their second petition, concluding that the African society was engaged in legitimate benevolent activities. Therefore, on March 23, 1810, the African Society for Mutual Relief became the first Black organization to be incorporated in New York State. In the years that followed, the Society occupied a central position in New York City's Black community, carefully cultivating a distinct political philosophy, blending overt calls for early Black nationalism with traditional appeals for moral improvement. Moral improvement held sway over most of the Northern Black population in the early 19th century as they gradually emerged from bondage. It emphasized the belief that Black people could secure an elevated status in American society by convincing whites of their humanity, morality, and worthiness. Its proponents argued that Black people could eventually gain freedom and citizenship in American society if they behaved according to the prevailing notions of proper conduct. The African society endorsed this ideology and incorporated it in their organizational structure. Aspiring members had to apply in writing and have a current member vouch for their character. Such a rule demanded that applicants be literate, a requirement that many could not meet. Even more revealing was an explicit section of the organization's constitution regarding moral conduct. Any member who drank, gambled, or engaged in any other immoral behavior would be expelled and forced to surrender his membership rights. If these rules seem elitist and unnecessarily harsh from a 21st century perspective, such regulations reflected the early 19th century context and the Black leadership's growing belief that moral improvement could transform the community and prove that Black people were worthy of American citizenship. The African society's commitment to moral improvement as a political philosophy became particularly evident during the War of 1812, when Black people were called upon to demonstrate their allegiance to the United States. In an effort to demonstrate their patriotism, African society members printed an article in the New York Evening Post in April 1814, calling for Black people to assist in building fortifications in Brooklyn Heights. Their plea was called a test of patriotism, implying that the Black community's loyalty was in question and that they should prove their American spirit by aiding the war effort. More importantly, they asserted that by doing their patriotic duty, Blacks could gain equal treatment, civil rights, and citizenship. The Black community responded affirmatively to the call. Led by African society members Peter Williams Jr., Thomas L. Jennings, and John Teesman, thousands of Black New Yorkers flocked to Brooklyn and Harlem to assist in fortifying the city. Two months later, when Congress passed a law permitting Black men to serve in the Army, 
Black New Yorkers formed two regiments and fought for the United States. Despite their commitment to moral improvement, however, the African society also cultivated notions of early Black nationalism. Convinced that the Black community could only advance through racial solidarity and community building, their members delivered numerous public speeches between 1808 and 1830, calling upon Black people to draw upon their African heritage as a foundation for political action. Through racial unity, they maintained, Black people would eventually shake off the shackles of slavery, gain liberty, and find true equality and justice. Throughout the early 19th century, the society's influence was powerful and omnipresent in New York City's Black community. Its success was likely sustained by their open expressions of African culture, which united Black folks across class lines. Although many working-class Blacks did not officially join organizations like the African Society, they supported the activities that celebrated their shared African heritage. Perhaps the most compelling example was the African Society's practice of parading. Between 1810 and 1829, they held grand processions through the streets of New York to honor their incorporation. These parades were especially important because they proudly exhibited African culture and racial pride, incorporated various cultural elements from West Africa, such as drumming, marching in formation, displaying colors and banners, and even singing in various West African languages. Parading was also a strong political act at a time when the humanity of Black people was still not widely acknowledged and when many Black people still languished in bondage. It allowed Black New Yorkers to seize public space and declare their right to exist as free and equal citizens. Black parades then were important both culturally and politically, as they allowed the Black community to simultaneously celebrate their African heritage and assert their right as potential citizens. Beyond their cultural and political significance, Black activists must have known that parades were a powerful way to unite the community. Flamboyant, energetic processions would have appealed to Black people across class lines because they provided an opportunity to publicly celebrate. As they were boisterous community events, parades allowed for free association and unbridled expression. Combined with distinctively African music, clothing, colors, and banners, parades would have been irresistible to the entire Black community. Not surprisingly, however, many white New Yorkers strongly opposed Black parades. In 1810, when African society members elected to memorialize their incorporation with a procession in the city streets, they were warned not to proceed with their plans. In fact, one of their white allies predicted that Black celebrants would be, quote, torn in pieces by howling mobs, end quote. Even so, the African society paraded, despite the threats, declaring, quote, we will go, though death stares us in the face, end quote. In fact, African society member Samuel Hardenberg flaunted their bravery by leading the commemorative parade riding on horseback and carrying a drawn sword in his hand, a particularly shocking display of Black power at a time when slavery still dominated most of New York State. The African society and numerous other Black organizations continued to parade in New York City streets for nearly two more decades. The most notable event occurred in 1827, when the African Society led a massive parade with over 2,000 Black marchers in honor of New York State emancipation. Once again, the Grand Marshal was Samuel Hardenberg, who rode a white horse and brandished a drawn sword. Accompanied by his official aides and the Speaker of the Day, he marched through City Hall Park to salute the mayor before leading the procession down Broadway. Nonetheless, parading fell into dishonor as moral improvement gained strength in the Black community. 
Despite its cultural and political significance then, such activities gradually dwindled. The African Society held its last procession in March 1829. Soon thereafter, parades fell into disrepute and emancipation commemorations disappeared altogether. However, the African society's activism grew in other ways. Members were particularly committed to their community's economic well-being and success, increasingly believing that the accumulation of real estate would be important to such efforts. On August 18, 1820, members purchased the small plot of land in the Five Points, on which they constructed a meeting house and were quite pleased with the location for two revealing reasons. First, its position in the heart of the Black community allowed the building to become a community center for the entire Black population and a meeting space for all the city's Black organizations. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, they selected that site in hopes that as the shipping industry expanded, the neighborhood would become one of the most valuable locations in New York City. However, as the organization's historian later reflected, quote, the hope of our members never realized itself, end quote, as commerce expanded in the opposite direction. Regardless, this planning demonstrated a powerful dedication to community solidarity and economic independence. For many Black New Yorkers, the African society's efforts served as a symbolic representation of their hope that Black people could have a prosperous future in the United States. The Society expanded its vision in 1825, when three of their charter members, Andrew Williams, Epiphany Davis, and Samuel Hardenberg, purchased several plots of land in Upper Manhattan, thereby establishing the community that eventually became known as Seneca Village. Driven by the same desire to accumulate real estate and create strong Black neighborhoods, Society members and other Black New Yorkers slowly began migrating northward to create their own community. By the late 1830s, Seneca Village was a beautiful, thriving Black neighborhood, home to a vibrant array of homes, churches, schools, and flourishing gardens. During this era, the African Society's political activities also continued to flourish. In March 1827, esteemed members Boston Crummel, William Hamilton, and Peter Williams Jr. established the first Black newspaper in the United States. Later known as Freedom's Journal, the paper became the voice of Black activists across the North for the next two years and laid the groundwork for other Black newspapers, such as the Colored American and the North Star, which soon followed. Other African society members became outspoken abolitionists, men such as Thomas L. Jennings, Philip A. Bell, Charles B. Ray, James McCune Smith, Albro Lyons, and William Powell were not only active African society members, they were also revered leaders in the fight against slavery and in the battle for racial equality. Jennings, for example, led the fight to desegregate streetcars in New York State. Bell and Ray each edited Black abolitionist newspapers, including The Colored American and The Pacific Appeal, while Smith worked diligently with the American Anti-Slavery Society and penned powerful orations on behalf of the Black race. Continuing their commitment to covert political activism, many African society members also worked clandestinely in the abolitionist movement. According to numerous reports, the African Society's lodge not only served as a meeting house, it also functioned as a safe house on the Underground Railroad. Members apparently created a passageway that led to a secret chamber cleverly hidden beneath the lodge. The area extended the entire length and width of the building where fugitive slaves could be effectively concealed. 
Multiple members, such as Albro Lyons, Charles B. Ray, and William Powell, also served as conductors on the railroad, likely using the African Society Meeting House and their property in Seneca Village to harbor and protect fugitives. These activities, however, earned the African Society numerous enemies, including elected officials and white vigilantes. In 1834, enraged by their success, an angry white mob demolished the African meeting house and the property of numerous African society members. These riots proved to be one of the longest and most violent pogroms of the antebellum era. At its height, between 7,000 and 8,000 rioters descended upon the Black regions of the city with a rage that prompted the New York Evening Post to report that, quote, the fury of demons, end quote, had consumed the rioters. Black institutions such as the African Society's Meeting House, the African Schoolhouse, and many successful businesses were singled out for excessive violence. African Society members were also targeted, including Moses Blue, whose home the mob besieged and destroyed. Reverend Peter Williams Jr. suffered the most damage. His church, St. Philip's Episcopal Church, was utterly obliterated. For two hours, the angry horde devastated both his church and his home without any intervention from the police or authorities. Rioters also pursued African Society member William Hamilton, who bravely fought back. Loaded down with iron missiles, he declared he would rather die than allow the mob to destroy his home. Notably, days before the violence erupted, African Society member Epiphany Davis wrote to New York City's mayor prophesizing danger and pleading for protection. However, the mayor ignored his warning and the Black community went up in flames. Decades later, the enemies of Black freedom, particularly New York City Mayor Fernando Wood, also conspired to eradicate Seneca Village. And in 1857, the community was destroyed in order to create Central Park. Although the African society endured an endless onslaught from their enemies, the organization continued to thrive up through the Civil War. Its membership expanded and became increasingly politically active, while the organization continued to acquire property. After the Civil War, however, the society experienced a slow decline. Although members continued to convene regularly for several more decades, the organization became less and less significant. As other organizations, such as the NAACP, became more powerful and influential, Black folks increasingly viewed mutual aid associations, such as the African Society, as antiquated notions from a bygone era. The Great Depression dealt the most devastating financial blow as their properties, including the original meeting house, fell into disrepair and members were forced to use their own funds to bail out the organization. In the years that followed, membership dwindled. And by 1945, the society ceased to exist. It was a painful, heartbreaking end to an organization that had championed freedom, justice, and equality for more than a century. Yet nothing could erase the African society's proud history or its efforts to eradicate slavery, uplift the Black race, and achieve racial equality. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at GothamCenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner. 
Director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone.